from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Our guest today is musicologist Destiny CB. They are set to complete their Master of Arts degree in Historical Musicology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison this spring and are currently the research assistant to prominent feminist musicologist Dr. Susan C. Cook. They are a graduate of the Baldwin-Wallace Conservatory where they majored in music history and literature and studied bassoon with Cleveland Orchestra contrabassoonist Jonathan Sherwin. They gave a conversation lecture with the Canton Symphony Orchestra discussing the largely overlooked rich impact of women on the field of classical music and the legacy they have left behind. Destiny CB, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to join you today. Yes, uh, and I'm so happy to have you because we are friends. I get to interview a friend for the podcast, which is super exciting for me. Um, and a lot of what we're going to be talking today about is obviously your research, but also gender identity. And I have known you for five years <laughs> and for a majority of those years until July, question mark? July, I believe. Um we used she, her pronouns uh, when addressing you, and you now are using they, them as well as she, her. So I think we wanted to just start off this podcast for those people who are a little unfamiliar with non-binary, what that means and pronouns and all, all of everything that comes with that. So I don't know if you want to just kick us off kind of explaining that for us. Sure. Um, so... Again, for anybody who might be unfamiliar or have not met or don't know that you have met somebody who is non-binary, all of that means all of that means is uh, that a person may not fully embrace the binary, if you will, the two options of male or female. This can look a lot of different ways. There is not one correct way to be uh, non-binary. For me, uh, I was, you know, a when I was born, they told my parents, oh, it's a girl. And that's that's kind of okay. Uh, if you ask me, like, do I identify as a woman? Kind of, not exactly. So that's where I'm still embracing um, she, her pronouns. And in my case, I do um, view myself in a somewhat feminine way in relationships, for example. Like, I consider myself a sister to my two siblings. I consider myself a granddaughter to my grandmother. Um, but do I, I totally embrace all kind of societal roles that I am a woman and a woman should be exactly this way? I do not. So uh, throughout this interview, of course, so again, I started using 
both sets of pronouns uh, at the beginning of this calendar year. I didn't. I don't think Rachel knew about it until July. Like she said, I started using them in January when I started classes that semester. Um, but either is fine. And so referring to me as either she or her or they or them, all of those are fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we are going to strive today to use they them because I think it is a good practice because they them can also apply to every human. They can be used for everyone. So it's, you know, it's one of those things that if you are unsure of someone's identity or someone's pronouns, using they them is always a great option because it's, it's universal. It works for everything. And so I, you know, for me, it's, 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 it's different because I'm so used to she, her, but I am going to do this. This is going to happen. So. Sure. And yes, it's definitely <laughs> an option unless somebody tells you explicitly otherwise. Exactly. Um, particularly, I know for many transgender people, um, mm -hmm. they want to be referred to as their very specific pronoun, right. um, right. as just he, him, or just yes. she, her. But if, again, if you don't know, they, them is generally safe. Yeah, generally safe. Well, thank you for explaining that because I feel like some people listening probably have never encountered someone that is non-binary or they don't know about it yet. So I think that's really informative and helpful. Yeah, you for probably people. know someone who's non-binary and you just don't know about it. Probably. They haven't told you or it just hasn't come up. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we are going to unpack that a whole lot over the next uh, little while here in the time that we have. But first, let's talk a little bit about your view of the music world today and specifically the orchestral music world uh, in as much as you know about it, involved are involved in it and have a relationship with it. How do you see the orchestral industry today? Sure. So, and I hope you'll forgive me for getting a little poetic and metaphorical here, but I view the orchestral industry as a rich, diverse, ever-growing ecosystem right now, uh, particularly thanks to the internet. We have more options than ever before to network with one another, to find new projects in orchestral literature, um, and to dig up new uh, or new to us but old items from the past to learn a little bit more about the music we might be thinking about or performing. Um, there are so many niches, I think, to carry out, and so many orchestras and chamber groups, and also educators and researchers, researchers like myself, uh, who are wanting to push forward the orchestra's role in their communities and opening a lot of doors for education. Um, don't get me wrong, there's definitely something to be said for what I would call the traditional or, uh, orchestra audience experience, where, you know, you go um, you get dressed up and go to the symphony on the weekend night and hear them play a Beethoven symphony. Like, don't get me wrong, uh, during COVID, th that's been something I have missed, of course, like not being able to have that experience. But also from this, we are learning that there are so many ways to share, to explore, to expand orchestral literature. And this is something that started before COVID. It's something I hope will continue long after, um, you know, each new project or piece of music or research publication being, again, if you'll excuse the metaphor, being like one organism in our ecosystem of orchestra. And I think we're all the richer for each piece. Yeah. 
I think that's interesting because we used that metaphor in our children's concert for this fall. That's the exact metaphor we used was an ecosystem. So I that, swear I didn't copy you. I, well, I know. I think that's great. I think it's it, it's a universal <laughs> thing to think about music in that way. Um, so I think l- looking more specifically at exactly what you focus on is musicology. And first off, what is musicology? I feel like some people don't even know that that's a field that exists. People have heard of biology and psychology, <laughs> but... Uh, People probably didn't know there was an ology related to music. Tell us what you do. Sure. So that suffix, the ology suffix, still applies. So the easiest, most plain definition is musicology is the study of music. The reading, writing, researching, thinking about music in any form. Um, This is a field that has been... It might sound kind of newfangled, but it has been around for a very long time. It really sprung up in the 19th century um, in response to a lot of people wanting to learn more about Beethoven and trying to understand where all of his works came from. And it has since grown into this much bigger thing where people can uh, use it to think about very generally um, music and how it relates with culture and politics and expanding to include disciplines outside of what we would call the the Western art music or Western classical music tradition. Um, Sometimes that might be called ethnomusicology, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. Uh, Though at the same time, there is a lot of crossover between the two. So we're also thinking about not just archival studies, not just score studies, not just trying to find old letters that so and such composer wrote to their colleague way back when to see what we can figure out, but it's also being able to do field work and interview people who are alive right now. Mm. Um, so the the very broadest answer would be kind of the academic sort of pursuit of learning about music. Mm. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. So to follow up with that, how are some ways that you do what you do? How do you do musicology? <laughs> That's a good question. And so if you go to most any university to get a graduate degree, either a master's degree or a PhD uh, in musicology, you surprisingly, and this has been a a weird thing to explain to my family is I'm getting a degree in music, but I'm not required to play a musical instrument for said degree, which mm-hmm. can be super often like you're studying music, but you're not playing music. Mm-hmm. How do those things go together? All of that said, um, I I did grow up with a super rich experience with my music education. Uh, I'm a bassoonist, just like Rachel, which is how we met. Uh, we were in the same bassoon studio in undergrad. Uh, So I started playing bassoon at age 11, and uh, my middle school band director, Eve Parsons, was the one who, she was also a bassoonist, Mm -hmm. uh, who kind of set me up to start learning more and more about how music works, who set me off to go join the youth orchestra in the city and start taking lessons with a member of the orchestra. So even though I'm not playing bassoon as much in my musicology work now, I, I still constantly have that that framework of having been a performer and knowing how music works 
on the playing side, that is always coming in. Uh, just this morning, I was in a, a virtual class. I'm in a class this semester about the classical era, and we were doing a score study of Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. Mm. And to this day, when I do score studies, when I'm looking at scores, I always, my eyes go straight to the bassoon line. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's that. And so a lot of my classes will look a lot more like, um, look a lot more like literature and score study rather than performance. Mm. Uh, there's also independent research that we do. I'm also a teaching assistant, so I'm teaching uh, undergraduates right now about music history, which has been a joy. Uh, so yeah, so I think that's some of the mm -hmm. some of the ways I do musicology. I right. hope that answers that one. Right. So you it, you mentioned research and you do like you focus on a specific bit of like, you know you're learning everything right now so you're in lots of classes learning about all aspects of of the history of music itself but you also do research and so could you explain a little bit about what led you to your feel uh, well in general musicology what led you to to decide to pursue musicology and then in turn your specific focus okay definitely so like I said, um, I got involved in music from middle and high school, and I knew I wanted to do something in music um, going forward, but I didn't have tremendous interest in becoming a professional perform performer. Um, I didn't like the idea of taking auditions. Uh, I was terrified, again, as a bassoonist, of having to make reads all the time, <laughs> uh, though through undergrad I did uh, get over that fear you a got, little bit. You definitely got um, over that and fear. And more practically, I didn't like back then staying up late, Like, and you know, a lot of, for a traditional orchestra concert, you know, you're going into work, your work starts at 8pm, <laughs> and High School Destiny was in bed by like 9 30 at the <laughs> latest so i was like that's not going to work with for me what else can i do in music and i started undergrad actually as a music therapy major this super altruistic wanting to heal people through music it is a tremendous field uh it i found in my sophomore year especially that it was just not quite the right fit for me um and I chose a new major somewhat manically. Um, <laughs> this is a kind of a colorful story. I, during a wind ensemble concert at Baldwin Wallace, there was this one piece that we were performing that I wasn't on, so I was just sitting back backstage. It was a uh, Carol Husa's uh, music for Prague, nineteen sixty-eight, mm -hmm. uh, and so everybody else is on stage performing, and I'm sitting backstage, frantically looking through the online catalog to figure out what major. I could switch to and still graduate in four years <laughs> and my options were music theory and music history and we, I had just started the music history sequence for all music majors like six weeks before mm -hmm. and I was like I like it so far so <laughs> let's and I just dove head first yeah. and I was so lucky to find that it was actually something I really enjoyed and combined a lot of my interests and the things I really liked doing, not just music, but also reading and writing and public speaking, uh, all of these things. I And I had, again, incredible mentors along that way. So getting into my specific research field, in undergrad, uh, my primary research focus was on women in classical music in 
primarily the early 20th century in the United States, again, uh, hearkening back to my conversation lecture. Um, so I was thinking both about a couple of composers in particular. I wrote my undergrad thesis uh, about an art song composer named Harriet Ware, who I found out about by accident because we had one of her pieces in the archive at our school. Uh, I also did research about that archive itself, the Riemann Schneider Bach Institute, and thinking about a lot of the different ways that women contributed to that institution and the Bach Festival there um, beyond just some of our how we traditionally look at music history and just thinking about people who compose music or conduct or who are great soloists, but thinking about all of the people who contribute to classical music. Mm -hmm. um, my research now, I've pivoted a little bit more now that I'm in graduate school. Uh, I have I've come back to thinking a lot more about wind ensemble, which I've already told a wind ensemble story already, but that's definitely been my that was always my most joyful place as a performer and now getting to explore that repertory um, on the academic side. I am mm -hmm. specifically for my thesis, for my master's thesis, I am looking at, um, I'm considering different works from the 21st century uh, that were written in response to terrorism and gun violence mm -hmm. and what those pieces, what what they're doing and what, why they were written and why they've been commissioned. Uh, these are works like David Meslanka's mm -hmm. Testament, which is about 9-11. Mm -hmm. This is about uh, Julie Giroux's My Soul to Keep, which was written after the, the Pulse nightclub shooting mm -hmm. in, in Orlando. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Works like those. Mm. Wow. Excellent. And I know that musicology and music history are both you can get a degree in one or the other, but you've mentioned a lot about music history and a lot about musicology. Just again, for our listeners, what are some differences between those two fields, key differences? Sure. Music history is kind of one component of musicology. So music history looking at, you know, the record of events that have happened in music. Musicology considers those like very closely, but also uh, musicology can borrow from other disciplines as we think and write about music. One of the ones I'm more familiar with and I think is more relevant to our talk today is thinking about theories uh, written by gender and women's studies scholars and how they're relevant when applied to music. Mm -hmm. And you can cross that over from a lot of different fields. But mm -hmm. That's just, again, one I'm right. more familiar with. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That actually helps me a little bit. <laughs> I'm over here trying to trying to understand some things and I need things clarified for me as well. But yeah. Um, so we're talking a lot today about gender identity. We've already talked a little bit. And so I wondered if we could kind of start off this conversation a little deeper into that with you sharing your own journey of gender identity and discovery and how, how that has happened and continues to happen for you. Sure. So I just very personally, um, coming out has been a super slow process for me and the kind of situation where a lot of people around me, like friends and even some family, knew that I was queer before I did. <laughs> um, and I say queer, uh, first of all, reclaiming 
kind of a, a word that has been used pejoratively throughout history, um, but also as an umbrella term both for gender and sexual identity uh, diversity. So mm -hmm. I guess that's a good thing to clarify mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. I really didn't start embracing, first of all, any uh, anything other than straight, cis identities until late high school, early college. Again, I didn't really come out um, in terms of being non-binary until the year 2020. So uh, it's definitely been a slower process, but my experience has been that the classical music world, I was sometimes told as a, as a youth in a kind of pejorative way that like, oh, classical music is full of we'll say LGBTQ plus people, but that's not how it was informed to me. It was um, kind of told to me in a, a more rude way. Mm. And that's true. I did develop more community and meet a lot more people with similar experiences to mine through performing and through being in a music conservatory. But really, um, getting involved in musicology has has been a particular catalyst because again it's not just that there are people involved in our field who happen to be queer but there are people who are writing and thinking about queerness as it relates to music who are able to articulate that and i don't exactly um consider myself to be a queer music scholar i have gotten to do a little bit of work uh in that area uh for example for one of my courses in spring of 2020 i was able to i was able to uh do a term paper on diversifying queer representation in musical theater mm. about shows like the color purple mm -hmm. and fun home mm. and representation outside of uh, white gay men characters right. Right. so being able to think about it musical musicologically has also allowed me to think more about and think more critically on a personal personal level. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, does your family know that you're non-binary at this point? And if so, how was telling them? Uh, and I, a big reason I ask this is, I'm a millennial. I'm I'm a little bit older than you. And even when I was around your age, there just weren't a lot of people that were talking about non-binary as a gender identity. And so even for some of my generation, this is a newer concept. And as a result, I know that uh, our parents' generation, the, the Gen Xers or the uh, baby boomers, that it's really a, a novel concept. So how have you, especially with uh, relating to some of the older generations that you interact with in your life, how have they taken it? That's a really good question. So um, my family... All of my family knows about my being um, queer in terms of sexuality. Not all of my family have I had close conversations with about being non-binary. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, I kind of think, think about my gender identity as being a part of who I am and important to me, but not the most interesting thing about me, hmm. not something that um i have to be 
I don't know, I think there are more interesting things and more reasons for those for my loved ones to care about me regardless. Mm -hmm. um, that said, there is a you do have a good point that it's a lot of new information um, for different people. And my my siblings, for example, my two sisters are a bit older than I am. They're seven and 11 years older than I am. Um, so they would be firmly millennial, whereas I'm kind of Gen Z cusp, I guess. Um, or the iGen, as I like to call it, and as many <laughs> others do. Uh, but I think I think one of the biggest reliefs has been, you know, of course, I and I, I grew up in Kentucky, right? So there are plenty of stereotypes you can throw in that are not exactly true about growing up in Kentucky, <laughs> but there is certainly something to be said for uh, in more rural areas, not having a lot of that representation in your community. And so it's been kind of a relief to watch particularly my sister who has two children, one of whom is 10 and the other who is whom is two, and watching her talk to the older child, especially in these really welcoming and in friendly terms. And I, I'll never forget when my nephew was probably like six or seven and uh, my sister Lauren asking him, um, you know, remember what I what I told you? And he says, yeah, that that love is love and that people can be who they they really are. Mm -hmm. And that is always I don't even think they would remember it, but it's something that's that's stayed with me. Mm -hmm. So I, I've been pleasantly surprised most of the way through in terms of my family and people who are closest to me. Mm. That's wonderful. That's really You've been very fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That said, I, I, I did have other negative experiences mm -hmm. when coming out with um, particularly uh, the religious community that I was a part of mm -hmm. throughout my uh, teenage years. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely have been fortunate on the family side, but I have also, yeah. I won't get too much into that, but yeah. I, I have had some less than perfect experiences mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember several conversations that we would have. I, you know, I can think of them on just coming to my brain of us down in the read room of Baldwin Wallace, having some, some tough conversations about life and realities of the way people think. And, you know, this is the reason why we have podcasts like this is hopefully demystifying what people think is scary or different um, and hopefully just informing people about what is just life and normal. And um, yeah. So I think going back into your, your research and, 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 and music and musicology and gender um, in your eyes, how are gender and music connected? Ooh, so that, that answer from what I know of history has changed a lot over time and it changes a lot depending on where you are. So kind of whether we like them or agree with them or not, um, our societies prescribe various gender roles to individuals. And this is even for those who are who are cisgender, who, who will identify with whatever gender they were given at birth. This is still relevant then that that has over the course of history affected what kind of people work in music, what mm -hmm. kinds of music they engage with or write or perform. Uh, for one example, in the 19th century in the US and the UK in particular, you rarely if ever would have seen a woman performing an instrument other than piano or harp 
or maybe violin, but usually piano or harp. Particularly, uh, you wouldn't see them playing a wind instrument um, because that was the, the distortions of your face were considered unladylike, like the things you have to do for your face, uh, you know, to play flute or bassoon or trumpet um, or you know, to play cello, of course, you have to have your legs apart most of the time, and that's that would also have been unladylike. So there are certainly a lot of effects historically mm. on what kind of music um, different people can be involved in based mm -hmm. on gender. Mm. And as we've progressed now, and at least in the United States, in in some regions, in some uh, situations in the 21st century, we see a lot more people being able to be a bit more um, open and public about their identities. We can start to see uh, more clearly um, musicians and people surrounding music who are able to incorporate those experiences into their music making or their scholarship or their mm -hmm. composition or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, Gender and sexual identity, now as ever, is politicized. It's an inescapable portion of a queer person's reality. Mm -hmm. um, so while I say earlier that that is not all of who we are, right? There, there are more interesting uh, facets of our personalities and our lives and our histories. But because the politicization of our identities occurs, it can influence the kind of music we create and mm. what we put into our music. Mm -hmm. So there is this balance, right, of queer people are more than just their queerness mm -hmm. uh, and transgender and non-binary people are more than just their gender identity, but also um, we can't totally separate ourselves. And so that is going to influence our music making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about how has your some ways your gender identity has influenced the research direct the direction that your research has taken, or uh, how you through your lens through your perspective how you view music? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so as I've kind of talked about already, uh, my my research interests have intersected with gender and identity um, to varying degrees, sometimes being very like the on the nose topic about what I'm writing about, sometimes being considerably less related. And so that's also on the other hand, I am, when I'm doing research, I'm still always thinking about those things, right? Mm -hmm. There's still, even if it is not the forefront of the issue, um, that is a perspective that I'm going to have approaching mm -hmm. it, right? right like, right. Um, kind of coming in, thinking about, you know, if, for example, two of the three composers I'm really focusing on for my thesis right now um, are members of the LGBTQ plus community mm -hmm. and recognizing the relevance of those where it's applicable, even though that thesis is not really about queer issues mm, overall. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's interesting. So do you feel that as, as you grew up and as, you know, later high school, early college, when you, 
you know, you came in as music therapy and then you had to make this switch and you just kind of gut reaction. We're like, ah, okay, music history. It'll be great. Do you feel that um, once you pick that field, especially given since I know the insight of the people who teach at Baldwin Wallace, that you felt compelled to go into the direction of women in music because of your experience with identity and gender, um, even though you didn't necessarily have this huge relationship with music history at that point? Do you feel like it came naturally for you because of that? I think so. And I think both, again, my, my mentors at BW and also just my classmates and the people um, I surrounded myself with had so many interesting thoughts, both music related and not, about gender and identity. And I found myself over the course of my four years learning not just so much about music, but learning so much about identity. Mm. I mean, I I left with a lot of different um, experiences and perspectives than when I entered college. Mm -hmm. So I think definitely it became kind of a, a natural course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that makes sense to me. It's hard to leave college with the same perspectives that you had going in. I think that's probably true for anyone who went Absolutely. to college. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I can say I, it's been eight years and counting since I graduated <laughs> with my bachelor's degree, 12 years and counting since I entered college. And I, I know I changed light years from <laughs> when I entered college to when I graduated. And I have changed from the time I graduated to the present, but not as much as yeah. during college. It's really a, an incredibly formative time mm -hmm. in a young person's life. And it really saddens me that so much of the traditional college experience is put on hold during the coronavirus right. pandemic that we are experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting quite the same in-person interactions with peers, the late nights in the read room that you guys <laughs> yeah. are talking about. That, that yeah. is as educational right. of an experience as what you actually learn in your classes. And I think I think it's you, you saying that and, and the destiny, the way that, that you explain musicology, music history. Musicology is almost the study of the stuff that happens just not on stage. It's like all the background stuff and the reasons that things were written and the discussions that composers must have had with one of their friends late at night that made them think of this one piece to write it and what was happening in the world at that time. And I think that's interesting that, you know, musicology is such an interesting field because it takes the world and life experience and kind of just shoves it all into music. And I think that's really neat. And I think also, you know, the it reminds us that these composers that we revere so much, at the end of the day, they were people. Mm -hmm. And they had human experiences yeah. just like we did. They went out after premieres of their pieces and, and drank. <laughs> just, just like any... Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> I would be stressed if I was, you know, certain composers after a premiere of certain pieces. <laughs> right of Spring, what? Um, <laughs> you know. And uh, many of the, many composers raised families and right. and anything else that that people do. And I think your field helps remind us that these people were people, and they were influenced by things other than these notes and rhythms being projected down from some higher <laughs> being onto the page. Right. Right. I 
I definitely agree with you that one of the big lessons of musicology is that music does not exist in a vacuum, mm -hmm. that all of the experiences of our lives as we put into our music, um, everything that's happening surrounding the, the creation and the production of the music. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this is kind of going back to my lecture that sometimes we we, we focus a lot on the composers, right? But they're not the only ones who make music happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, thinking about audiences and what they care about. I mean, they're the ones who are who are supporting this music making, especially after, um, you know, starting in the 17th and 18th centuries when the more court and chapel music sponsorships start to fall away mm -hmm. in favor of more kind of capitalist right. um, manners of making music. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely been even more the case in the United States since we have never had royals to bankroll <laughs> musicians. Right. So, yeah. And you yeah. can see yeah. that transition. Everything is connected. Everything's connected, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can see that transition, I think, for, for our listeners who are not aware of this. Mozart wrote a number of operas, and many of them are in Italian, but a few of them are in German. Right. And the ones that were written in Italian were sort of meant for the upper Over echelons of society sponsored by these yeah. the, the court mm -hmm. essentially whereas the german operas uh, notably the magic flute the abduction from the seraglio these were meant for the people right. and, and for this capitalist market this right. rising capitalist market that was making its way into the music world at the time yeah definitely yeah. and at that point in history Italian opera being revered as this kind of highest possible form of music making um, to the extent that some of the, the, the forms that we really respect now, the symphony in particular, um, were kind of more of an entertainment genre. Uh, <laughs> there was a very different value judgment there where folks in the 18th century, if music didn't have words, it didn't mean anything. It was decoration. Yeah. Uh, and Mozart is really one of the ones who starts turning that around, who, yeah. especially in those German operas, are are giving these vocal-like qualities to the instrumentalists, mm. uh, these singing styles. And this yeah. is, that's yet another effect of how the world around us has shaped into, you yeah. know, the 19th century symphonies that we've come to love as orchestral music listeners. Right, right. That's super. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I feel like the history behind music is is so fascinating, and I'm I'm glad we can talk about it a little bit. We could probably talk for hours about one particular Absolutely. thing in one particular year sure. in history. We probably... and again, that's been an advantage of you know I all of my research specialties have been 20th and 21st century. Yeah. But getting to take these as a as a musicology graduate student, being able to take these really in depth uh, seminars and surveys on things I might not find in my research right. have been have been quite the joy. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were talking earlier about your experience being told that the the classical music, the arts, however you look at it, there are a lot of queer people and being told that as a pejorative. However, I w I'm curious, what has been your experience as a non-binary person, as a member of the LGBT community, LGBT community in the space that you occupy in music, in the world of academic musicology? Again, there have been 
I've had the great joy of meeting so many other scholars who um, who intersect with these identities and who are considering how it might apply to their research or not. And also kind of considering, especially um, younger scholars like myself, you know, scholars who are in graduate school, um, learning how to be professionals and balancing these identities and things like, again, I'm a, a teaching assistant this semester, right? So mm -hmm. um, learning how to balance as an educator and what is, what do I share with my students? What do I not share with my students? Mm -hmm. What um, what makes my classroom safe without distracting the focus mm -hmm. in any way? Um, and so again, being able to learn from other people, mm -hmm. um, again, going all the way back to the beginning, uh, connecting, especially networks on the internet um, with other scholars has, has really strengthened all of these experiences for me. Right. And it, I think it's interesting. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not your area of focus with LGBTQ in music and, 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 and that influence on classical music. But how do you think that the experience of LGBT people in, in music could be more celebrated in classical music? Cause they've been around forever and composers <laughs> forever have been a part of this community, just not talked about or celebrated. So from your perspective, I know it's not your focus, but what do you think could be done to better celebrate those people modern and in the past? Right. So of course, just like you say there, we do, have a little bit more to work with in the modern era right. simply because they're uh, depending on location and exact timing and political situation in a region there's generally speaking more space for um, folks to be out publicly mm -hmm. um, so we can support musicians who are alive right now mm -hmm. who are members of these communities who may or may not be um, creating music on these topics. Again, that balance of um, it's always an effect, but it is not the only thing, thing to right. write about. So people like Jennifer Higdon yeah. or yeah. Uh, Caroline Shaw, mm -hmm. their pieces. But again, there are composers from the past um, who also are members of these communities. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, Dame Ethel Smythe. Um, who was a British composer. Yeah, I, I get some, some vigorous head nodding I from had one the of our hosts here. absolute pleasure of seeing the Wreckers performed at Bard College a few years ago. And oh my and, gosh, it was yes. wonderful. So one of my favorite works of hers, um, so I'll recommend this to all of our listeners at home, uh, her concerto for violin, horn, and orchestra, which premiered in 1927. Uh, you can also on Google pretty easily find a piece of scholarship. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right by uh, Janice Marie Ludacki. If you just Google the name of the piece, you'll find it um, for a listening guide for that piece. But again, you know, Ethel Smythe is a fascinating character who was an out lesbian in the late 19th and early 20th century, but there are a lot more things that make her a very interesting person. She mm -hmm. was the first woman to have an opera premiered at the Met. Yeah. Um, the second one, by the way, was in the last five years. It was Kaya Sarah. Wow, so, that big, um, that big of a gap? 110 year gap. That's there, a huge gap. At the Met. Um, wow. But she was also a suffragette. Um, 
you know, all of these, there's so much to her story that we can, we can celebrate her as a queer artist and remember that. And we can take her for more than just that, that token, if you will, being um, just a queer composer or just a woman composer and just being a really fascinating composer. Yeah, I think, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think a lot of things, you know, we've, we've had a couple of these conversations now for the podcast, but this idea that, um, we want to get to a point where we don't have to have conversations like this, where we just talk about people's work and it doesn't matter what their gender is, what their sexuality is, and just really or what their race is, or what for their that race matter. is. For, yeah, no, and so that we can just talk about their work and how it's not the one of the best female composers of all time. It's just the one of the best composers of all time. You know, instead of assigning all these things and and the danger that is tokenism and how that can really affect things. I th- I'm re- I'm really glad that you keep bringing up this fact of like. Yes, there are, are queer people, but we need to make sure that that's not the only thing we focus on about them because they are whole people and that there's a lot that makes up of them. And I'm really glad that you're holding us and, you know, audience members accountable about that. I think that's important. And I think, you know, it's interesting. There are some composers where their fame and their stature in the classical music world is so great that we don't think of them we don't think of their sexuality first i don't think there there i would say there are almost no concert goers who say oh tchaikovsky he was a gay composer no tchaikovsky yeah. was a russian romantic composer of yeah. incredible symphonies concertos and operas and, and ballets and like ballets, ballets of course ballets. yeah and happened to be gay, but nobody, it, it's not the first thing that comes to mind. Samuel Barber, I would say the same thing. He, he wrote Adagio for strings. Everybody mm-hmm. knows that piece and loves it, and mm-hmm. they don't think and of him. And cries over it. Yes, and cries over it. Yes. <laughs> and so there are some composers that have reached that stature, but at some point, of course, we all hope that we move beyond the labels entirely and to a point where we simply... These people were wonderful composers. Their music is worth playing, and it's worth audiences giving it the time to to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. So, so you were uh, you were talking a lot here about underrepresented communities in music, and uh, especially you brought out how they're present sometimes in the background of the music world, not even always the composers themselves or even the performers but patronesses of music uh many many throughout history spouses of male composers how can we view classical music through a different lens to see this representation where sometimes it can appear that there is not first i think um this might be the point where you have to edit out me uh, (laughs) going out into the distance. Um, If you're not seeing any representation at all, first, ask yourself why. Why are you only seeing a certain type of person being represented here? It is reasonably likely that there is something larger going on that's that's limiting, um, especially historically, uh, limiting folks' ability to participate mm-hmm. in the ways they might like or to um, receive the education so that they can pursue music right. in the way that they like. Right. Um, 
so there's a lot of there's a lot of larger systems there that said there are composers of all genders all races pursuing classical music and other types of music all throughout history they are there we just have to keep our eyes open mm -hmm. and i think um I might be jumping the gun on this one, um, but the, the number one thing we can do is just to listen, both mm -hmm. listening to their works as we find them, mm -hmm. but also, you know, listening to what these people have to say for themselves, how they have either written about what, about their lives, what we have on record for them, or um, for music makers who are alive now, um, listening to what they have to say. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, that's one of the reasons it's been a great pleasure to be able to talk with you today, that I, I can speak only as who I am, right. right? But hopefully I am perhaps not the same as every person listening mm -hmm. right now and can bring in my perspectives. Right. And there, there are more people who can bring in uh, their own experiences based on, on their communities, their identities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, looking at this entire conversation and music today and going into the future, and we all have acknowledged that I think COVID-19 has pushed us to a nexus point that is the point of no return of change for the orchestral community and the music community at large. But as we move forward to try to create change and we're doing podcasts like this and, you know, we're, we're doing all these things and orchestras are trying to make strides, why is it important that we turn to musicologists and music historians and look back at the past seemingly where we don't want to be to inform how we move into this future that is hopefully more inclusive more diverse etc though i am always an advocate and and lover of of new music um, i recognize that not all listeners are necessarily that's not necessarily their cup of tea and mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. um, that said we can still achieve a great amount um, of questioning of of learning about issues that are germane to our day mm -hmm. while still looking at music of the past right. and perhaps that's just for some people uh, a more pleasant listening experience. You know, some people don't like minimalism and they want to hear um, maybe musical styles that were more uh, prevalent in the 19th century. And that's great. And we can still make those same pieces through musicology and music theory. Mm -hmm. uh, we can still examine them in new ways with these same pieces that we have grown to love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So where do you see the field of classical music going in light of the pandemic, in light of the changing <laughs> world, the aging population in the concert hall, everything that we're experiencing right now in the classical music and specifically in the orchestral music profession, where do you see this going? You know, of course there is truth to the the kind of aging audience of orchestral music that said uh, music education and orchestral education is still so bright in the US and I know where I'm from at least um, my local youth orchestra who has been around for decades in the years that I was in it not that long ago were the <laughs> Uh, largest populations of, of students involved in in the youth orchestra and their programs than they had ever had before. Mm -hmm. And even, even if we 
like to make a monolith of orchestral listeners looking and behaving a certain way, mm -hmm. there really are a diversity of people who I think are interested in classical music or they're interested and they don't know yet. Mm -hmm. uh, that there is still so much space for new listeners mm -hmm. and new modes of reaching reaching them. Mm -hmm. uh, I think projects like this, like this podcast, mm -hmm. are just one of those excellent ways of reaching out to new people right. um, and exploring perhaps old music in a lot of cases in new ways. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's important that we just, you know, you've talked a lot about just having conversations and informing people and using education as a way to make people feel invited. And, you know, that's something that I think we, we strive to do better, which is why we have this podcast because selfishly we want to learn tricks from people for how to be better as an organization, right? We want, we want to be better and we, you know, we, we know that we can't do that without listening and learning from other people. So, you know, we thank people like you for being here, but, um, uh, you know, speaking of that, you, you've given some action items and you've and you've given us some some places to look and things to research. But what can we do as an organization and as individuals to orchestrate this change to make it more inclusive, to be more open minded? And then maybe what are what are some things that listeners can physically do to, you know, either become more educated, to learn more? Um, yeah, just anything that you have advice for us and listeners about making change. Definitely. Uh, and some of it, I'm just reinforcing previous things I've said, especially uh, if you can do one thing, please let it be listen. Uh, again, both listening to to music in that you're familiar with, with different mindsets, listening to music that you're not uh, familiar with, and also listening um, to what people outside of your identity and your community have to say mm -hmm. um, and learning in that way. Um, I think, and this is something that goes again beyond gender and music, mm -hmm. beyond um, gender and sexuality related to music. This can also go for race mm -hmm. and, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. um, just listening to people and trusting their lived experiences, mm -hmm. approaching those conversations with an open mind and uh, giving them the space to talk. Mm -hmm. And I guess one one kind of actionable thing is when you are are looking at an institution in in classical music, whether that's a, a university program or a symphony orchestra or a radio station, and you are not seeing um, the fullest representation, not being afraid to ask why. Mm -hmm. And um, as those those who are in charge of such organizations, being able to come prepared with those answers of here's what we're doing or here's what we're not doing and here's why. Mm -hmm. um, so that balance and um, there are some orchestras uh, throughout the United States who have really embraced this and I feel very strongly that such orchestras are the ones who are going to thrive in in the decades to come, whereas those who who don't want to answer a lot of these tough questions and not and not em, embrace um, 
the populations, the younger populations who have musical training and are interested and not want to embrace the things that they're bringing to the table, mm -hmm. those are the organizations who are going to fall fall behind, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Right, right, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Destiny CB, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. Is there anything else you'd like to add for, before our listeners, before we let you go? Uh, I don't think so. Just uh, my sincerest thanks um, for my two lovely hosts and for inviting <laughs> me here. And thanks to all of our listeners yes. for, for sticking around through all of this. I, I could not be more grateful. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We've really, we've really enjoyed talking with you, and it's been lovely for me to be able to talk with you. So, of course, Destiny CB is a musicologist currently pursuing a Master of Arts degree from the University of Wisconsin Madison. Thank you again for being our guest this afternoon. The Erie Philharmonic continues its journey around the musical world with another free broadcasted concert. Delve into the Russian soul with Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, and more alongside the music from contemporary composer Lyra Auerbach. You can check out the concert for free on Thursday, January 24th at 8 p.m. or Sunday, January 24th at 2 p.m. and on the Erie Philharmonic's Facebook page or online at wqln.org slash eriephil. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.